I wasn't really sure what my ethnicity was. Of course, I knew I was Chinese and I knew I spoke Chinese at home. But when I was at school, all I saw were other, you know, white girls and white boys. And a part of me almost thought I was one of them. And I was only reminded of such, you know, when I looked in the mirror because I acted so similar to them and because, you know, that was all I saw. Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Sandhya, and this is The Universal Grain, a podcast where we, two Generation Z Asian American teenagers, strive to share our perspectives by exploring issues that not only affect us, but our audience as well. In this episode, episode 6, we are going to be talking about whitewashing and that effect on culture, ourselves, and the media. So when I hear the word whitewashing, I immediately start to think of someone who distances themselves from their culture, like not in touch with the temple, with their grandparents, they don't speak their own language, because I feel like that's been taught to be bad through jokes and things that I hear around the community. And in reality, that's not bad. Everyone's finding their own bicultural sense of self when you're Asian American, And so those variables do not automatically make you cultured. Just uh, a joke that I know has been circulating around when I was growing up is the concept of someone being Asian, like being like a banana. So you're like yellow on the outside, like you're, you're Asian on the outside, like your physical appearance is Asian, but on the inside, you carry almost like a white personality or white persona. And so that's always been like a joke within the community. For me, it's been the coconut because um, it's brown on the outside and white on the inside. And I feel like I've been called a coconut jokingly, and I've actually called myself a coconut. Um, And I think I've internalized, I've used humor as a way to get over feeling not feeling um, inadequate because I don't speak Tamil. I understand Tamil, but I don't speak Tamil. I don't go to the temple as religiously as, say, my mom would have done, who's first generation. And because of those things, like because I feel that I'm not in touch with those aspects of my culture, I feel that I'm somehow letting down my grandparents who've tried really hard to tie me to my culture. And because, you know, I didn't grow up with Tamil around the house and just naturally picked up the ability to speak it, I'm kind of disappointing them in a way because I'm not as Indian as I should be. And it really just makes me feel unworthy of, you know, being able to say, oh yeah, I'm Indian. I feel that I'm almost more American than I am Indian. And that bicultural sense of self, I've really struggled to find a balance where I can say, hey, you know, I am both Indian and both American. On my side of the family, um, in a little, in opposite of, I guess, Sandia's situation, uh, my parents kind of, they knew that my brother and I were going to grow up in America and almost assimilate to American culture. So they made active efforts to make sure that we were still in touch with our Chinese heritage. For, I think, around 13 years of my life, I went to Chinese school every Sunday and I learned Chinese and I learned the culture and I learned the heritage. And we went back to China almost every summer, if not every other summer, to just understand who I was outside of who I thought I was in America. And I think it's really interesting that in a similar way with Sandia, I've struggled because sometimes I feel like I'm too Asian or I'm too Chinese. But at the same time, I feel like I'm not, I guess, white enough to be part of American society. And it's always been, I don't fit anywhere. And that struggle is um, something I think that all BIPOC people face in America because the culture 
that I experience here and the culture that I know in India are so different because they're in, I guess, their own different timelines. Like, America is so much more liberal. I know that my parents had to dress so much more conservatively than I do. They um, really had to be, in a sense, like, respect your elders, and there was really no talking back or no arguing with your parents, which I feel that I've definitely adopted. So, in that way, I'm different than, you know, say the average American um, who grew up here, whose parents are white. I go to some of my friends' houses and I see them, I see them talking back or saying their side of the case. And it just seems so foreign to me because this idea of just accepting and respecting your elders is very stressed. I don't know if it's a familial value that I have or it's just across all Asian cultures. But then in my thought and in my female empowerment ways, I would get, I would say I'm way more feminist than say my grandma would be, or, you know, the average teenager in India, I feel like would have a different view of feminist values than a teenager who grew up in America. Not only can this affect Asian communities and Asian American communities, but it also affects a lot of people who are stuck between the who am I, where do I fit in kind of bicultural stress. So for Latino groups, it's actually been shown that um, biculturals with integrated cultural identities, they have, um, they view themselves and their cultural in-groups as very closely aligned, which supports social identity theory. And for simplicity, I'm just going to use alt girls as a social identity. So say that I was, all of my friends were alt girls and I was just in a community where like the alt culture is very prevalent. Based on social identity theory, I would define myself as an alt girl as well. It plays on this herd mentality where you are defined by who you hang out with and you're defined by your group. So when this study is talking about Latino groups, they're basically saying that they stick together and by sticking together, they find a common identity. Um, And I think that I've experienced that myself when I am around Indian teenagers, Indian American teenagers who experience the same struggle as me and who are from the same community as me. They make me feel comfortable in how I feel and the dichotomy that I'm presented with. I don't know. It feels like they're kind of blending both identities and they make me feel like I'm not alone. For me, I guess it kind of might be the, I'm almost the opposite. I know I'm definitely different around my two groups of friends, those that are primarily Chinese or Asian and my other friends who are you know, primarily Caucasian because my school is mostly white. Um, And I've noticed that when I am around my Asian or Asian American friends, I feel a lot of pressure to take a lead or take a stand because that has been so ingrained in Asian culture and there's so much comparing. And I'm sure Sonia has experienced this as well, but when parents, you know, compare their kids and their grades and what they're doing. And so sometimes I feel a need to try to be on their level that they're so much better than me Um, when on the opposite end when I'm with my Caucasian friends I feel more relaxed because I know that's not something they emphasize as much in their society that I've assimilated to and so I think it can really go both ways it's wherever you identify with and there's this is not saying that I don't 
love hanging out with my Asian American friends as well. Like they're great people, but it's just, I tend to act differently around different social groups. And so I tend to identify as a different person, not a different person, but as feeling a different way about my personality and who I am and what I'm supposed to represent when I'm around different groups of people. I, I, I'm sure that um, a lot of people can relate to that. And I don't think that that just stems from cultural stress, but it also stems from um, high school and just figuring out who you are as a person. And I think that in a way, my cultural struggle and feeling like I'm too American in some senses and too Indian in others, I think that's really strengthened the part of me that wanted to find a balance. And in some ways, I feel that I have found that balance. I, st- I know that there will um, be different situations down the road, say, um, in my relationships or um, in how I conduct my life after school when I'm not with my parents or even just if I raise kids. Don't know if that's going to happen, but if I end up raising my kids, I wanna, I'm going to have to find that balance between the American culture that I've known and the Indian culture that I've known. Um, And right now that balance is definitely, you know, a little precarious, but I think that it's a good one for me. I also have been practicing Bharatanatyam, which is a Southern Indian um, classical dance. And I think that's really strengthened my sense of belonging in the Indian community. And it actually has been a beautiful thing. I've found a bunch of friends who relate to me, who have grown up in majority white places, but also have Indian parents can make, you know, the jokes about Asian culture or like the jokes about your parents being too over overprotective when your American friends are just like going wherever they want. Like I, I relate to these people on a different level and it's very different from how I felt beforehand because I used to feel completely at home in some relationships and completely alien in others. And I think learning about where the balance is and not compromising your identity and allowing the bicultural identity to show through in all relationships is something that just comes with uh, time when you build confidence in who you are. For me, I feel like whitewashing is kind of an overgeneralized term because Um, It really can describe so many different things, and it's such such a complicated idea to know in a personality to be whitewashed because a culture is always changing, a society's values are always changing, and in... um, And when in looking in clothing or media or movies, that is always changing as well because cultures blend and people change. And so I think when we talk about whitewashing, it's generally that those extreme cases of people who are maybe misleaded or misguided or they blatantly ignore facts of, you know, certain cultures that exist or don't exist. Um, And for me, it's kind of troubling, but at the same time, I guess I'm willing to say in some ways I've been whitewashed. And what I mean is that when I speak in Chinese, I have a little bit of an American accent. Um, I tend to want to dress the way that my Caucasian peers do. Not that I do not take pride in my traditional dress and things like that, Um, but my diet even, it's more 
accustomed to American society than I would probably like to admit, but at the same time, I find it uncomfortable to use the term that I am whitewashed because I am because I'm not white. That's just a fact. But whitewashing makes me think that I've lost my cultural sense of self that is everything but my American personality, I guess I would say. Yeah, and I agree with Allie that whitewashing is such an overgeneralized term, but I really don't think that whitewashing can apply to a person at all. Personally, I have like a very um, visceral reaction to the word whitewashing like when someone will call me whitewashed it usually just like brings a sense of shame to me you know I want to say I'm not whitewashed like I'm culture because I really don't I don't identify as that and I'm really I've really grown to be proud of who I am like there was a point in time where and I'm not sure if this is true for like every Asian American but there was a point in time where I really thought it would be easier to fit in and to just like have the Californian experience if I was white. And so for someone to call me whitewashed when I'm now comfortable in my identity, it kind of just reverses all of that, that feeling that I had when I was, when I was, you know, younger. Um, And I really don't think that whitewashing can be applied to a person because individuals and like personality there's such a mystery and they're always you know you're always developing your personality like you're always uncovering things and so for someone to just like put a color on an on an uh personality is just so weird to me but you can definitely apply it to movies you can definitely apply it to dress and you know those kinds of things like you can say that the movie Mulan was whitewashed because all of the behind the scenes people were white. And so they can't really bring that um, sense of culture and the sense of relatability that an Asian behind the scenes cast could. So in that sense, that movie was definitely whitewashed. You can say that the, the stuff they sell on Sheen and all of those fast fashion brands who can claim to be selling Oriental products those outfits are whitewashed because they're taking authentic Asian dress and revamping it into a marketable product for the American audience. So in that sense, dress is whitewashed, but you can't really do that to a person. Yeah, and not only is that, I guess, whitewashing, but that's also just straight up cultural appropriation because, you know, you're not, like, you're not being acceptive and respecting the culture and the meaning behind you know the dress it is and adding on to Sonia's thing about Mulan um the 2020 version I saw it on um online and a lot of the facts were a little bit weird to me being a Chinese American girl almost almost being in Mulan's place um although I don't like lead an army or whatever but um the setting, first of all, had kind of an issue. So Mulan's home is kind of in this like circle formation. And from what I understand of the legend, of course, I may not be right. I have not done as much research as I probably should have. But um, my, it was there's a certain minority group that has that circle kind of house. And the main group in China, we have traditionally, they're, they're almost like square 
shaped like yards. We call it Sihuyar. And so where each family lives in like a different house and it's and there's like a garden or whatever in the middle. And so that was kind of troubling that how could you miss such an integral part of Chinese culture and you could put a minority group and you know maybe if they were trying to place Mulan in a minority group setting like I guess that's fine but there was so much hype about this movie being Asian representative being the it movie for Chinese Americans like me um, moreover I know that a lot of people were you know upset about Mushu personally for me I didn't find this too upsetting of course Mushu is a very very funny character and his comments his witty comments are always something that I will enjoy but there were other parts of it that um made that made me a little more I guess in shock um I think a really big stereotype they play on in there and in the original movie um, was that daughters are just used for marriage and daughters are, you know, they're, they're sort of worthless in that way. And I think there is some truth in that, that traditionally in Chinese culture, um, daughters are sent off to other families. And just like in American culture where, you know, daughters are when they get married, they take on their husband's last name and things like that. But also Mulan is... Mulan was a story of bravery and I guess in a modern context, so a, a story of feminism. And I think it, the movie really downplayed that, especially since putting in the, the, like the hawk villain lady. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. Like I felt like it was so disconnected from the culture and I don't know. I, it just didn't seem right to me. So in the way that Ali said about Mulan focusing too much on one aspect, I think that a similar, um, not a movie, but a TV show that was recent is Never Have I Ever. And I think it had the same problems for me with um, the representation. So in that movie, her name is Davy, and she's an Indian American girl and she's struggling with so many problems, but they decided to really focus on relationships and her relationship with boys. And it painted um, a female character who I think could have been, had so much potential to be relatable to Indian American girls in a really bad light. It just painted her as boy crazy. Um, Yes, she was smart and yes, she was humorous. She was going through all these things and she was very strong, but they didn't really make that explicitly clear. They really focus the plot on the taboo of sex and the taboo of dating in Indian culture, which I will not deny it is a taboo, but I don't think that um, they, I think that they could have pulled back a little. I think that that should have been a secondary plot line. That shouldn't have been the main plot line because it had so much potential for exploring the bicultural sense of self that Davy Davy feels for um, her dad dies and like that that should be a part like Indian struggles with loss or um, a relationship between an Indian mom and an uh, Indian American girl and the experience between an immigrant and the first generation. There were so many different plot lines that I think could have been more impactful if they were stressed. 
Um, and it could have been a feminist TV show and a feminist piece that all Indian American girls can look up to. But um, the plot line with sex and uh, being attracted to those boys, that was really the only thing that um, you took away in retrospect. Um, I really thought that there was one good episode. It was called the Ganesha. It was the Ganesha Puja episode. I don't know what episode that was, um, but in that, it really, it really uh, hit home for me because there was one person who said, "Yeah, I used to hate these, but then I went off to college, and um, I kind of love these now. Like, I love the Pujas, and um, like, why be American? Why be like a white American and want to fit in when you?" when you have all this culture and like when you have something that you can, you know, relate to. And that really hit me like um, the culture shame that she was struggling with. I think that that is so, so important to address um, in the new generations of Indian Americans. Sandia just talked a little bit about culture shame. In addition to that, I wanted to share my own experiences with culture shame. Um, I know for me, sometimes I get embarrassed when I talk to my parents in Chinese when we're out in public, or if I'm ever um, wearing like Chinese clothes out in public, um, because I feel like I'm not like other people and I'm afraid people will stare. Um, and I'm sure, Sandia, you have a lot of experiences that are similar to mine. Uh, but whenever... I, I kind of have this idea that I want to be the same as everyone else. I don't want to be different because being different is bad. And, you know, I want to be in that school, that school of fish. I, um, I want to be almost Caucasian in a way. And I think I've talked about this in a previous episode. But when I was younger, I really had this thing where I wasn't really sure what my ethnicity was. Of course, I knew I was Chinese and I knew I spoke Chinese at home, but when I was at school, all I saw were other, you know, white girls and white boys. And a part of me almost thought I was one of them. And I was only reminded of such, you know, when I looked in the mirror because I acted so similar to them and because, you know, that was all I saw. And so I think that's why we brought up, you know, the media and um, the shows that we've been talking about. Yeah, so just a little bit about personal, about culture shame. Um, so I have this reoccurring thing in my life. And if I were to ever write a memoir, I think that this would just be like the motif of the memoir. It's walking into my local bagel shop in my Selvarkami or my like Pavade Lavani because I'm just like, I'm scared of it. And I don't know why. I think it's probably because, like, I'm afraid of the stairs, and I'm afraid people will be like, oh, you know, because I did actually have an experience like that in third grade. Um, I think everyone was kind of just more open when they were younger, like, they didn't feel a need to be insecure, so I was, you know, your, your normal, like, happy-go-lucky third grader. I came into class with a DVD of my cultural dance, and I was like, hey, th like for show and tell, I think, or something. And so she put it in the thing and everyone was watching me do my dance in my performance with like other people. And there were these boys who were, you know, white, like everyone else in my class was white. So there was a, these boys that started making fun of the dance 
And I was just like, whoa, I didn't know people would do that if you showed them something like this. Like, I thought everyone would just say, oh, you know, that's cool, and react like every other show-and-tell thing that was there. And so ever since then, I've been really guarded of, like, what I tell people. So when I tell – I think I've said this in another episode, but when I tell people I dance, I just say dance. And I just let people assume what they assume. Um, I used to sing – Carnatic music, which is another classical Indian form of music. Whenever I said I sung, I just said I sung. I wouldn't let people, you know, assume like, oh, is it Indian? Is, you know, those kinds of things. And so I, I'm afraid of walking into Brugger's in a different dress. And, you know, thinking about it, like, it's not so bad. I'm not wearing a big bird costume and walking into Brugger's. I'm just wearing an Indian dress. Like, I think it would be in, in like when I'm thinking about it when I'm talking right now I think it would be so weird I would definitely get scared stares if I walked into Brugger's in a big bird costume but I won't get stares and so this like internalized culture shame it just makes me so insecure and um I think that's I I I think that that's just something that you have to overcome once you become more comfortable with who you are Yeah, um, and the reason we brought this up is because, uh, like Sonia and I were talking about previously, it's kind of the idea that what we see when we're growing up is kind of what we become. Um, And this is especially prevalent in the media and movies, TV shows, and especially since kids are consuming more and more and more of the internet every year or even every day, it's really, really crucial that we learn that that we diversify our audience. In a survey by Common Sense Media, it said that it reports that the overall screen time among young people, it, um, on average, from for eight to twelve year olds, is about four to four, four hours and forty four minutes, and teens spend an average around seven hours and twenty two minutes, and not using this time for screens, for these screens for school or homework, and so this amount of media not including homework, is so substantial. Most of our waking hours are you staring in front of screens rather than, you know, talking to other people and learning their experiences. And even when we do, technology is such an integrated part of our world now that it's almost completely unavoidable. Um, And so I guess this leads us into, I guess, whitewashing in the film industry and, you know, this mass media that is produced. Um, So whitewashing in this context is a common practice where white um, actors are cast in non-white roles. And according to Merriam-Webster, to whitewash is to alter in a way that favors features or casters to white people, such as casting a white performer in a role based on a non-white person or fictional character. And so as long as this industry has been around, this kind of practice has been around as well because there was this kind of Caucasian superiority complex that when that occurred when um, Europeans went around and um, they used their diplomatic imperial imperialistic tactics on countries around the world and so um, the list of films in which white actors have played other races includes everything from romantic comedies to actions to fantasies to like historical epics. And so African-American roles and roles of Asian descent have been whitewashed in this way. And for an example, um, a lot of people have known about Emma Stone's part in Aloha, um, you know, how she wasn't really of 
Hawaiian descent, and that caused a lot of controversy. Um, another one, Scarlett Johansson in uh, Ghost in the Shell. It was based on a Japanese manga and anime, and Scarlett Johansson is not Japanese. And, you know, that, again, caused a lot of conflict. Uh, another one, John Wayne as Genghis Khan in The Conqueror. And this one was filmed in 1956, so I guess we can kind of cut it some slack for not being as aware about whitewashing back then. But at the same time, this should have never been something that happened in the first place because Genghis Khan is, you know, Mongolian and obviously Asian and John Wayne is not Asian. This proves to be an issue, especially for kids who are learning and, you know, they use this movie as a form of entertainment. Um, behind the scenes, though, a report in 2013 showed that 94% of film executives were white and non-white people were underrepresented as filmmakers. And this is concerning 94%, meaning that in every 100 people, 94, 94% of film executives are white. Now, this leaves a very little gap for the whole other rest of the world and the amount of diversity that comes from different cultures and different minds to be expressed. Um, and according to the New York Times, 70 3.1% of main character actors are white and the rest, the other 17% or so, they are all, you know, BIPOC characters. And if we are taking a look at the world in comparison of how many people are Caucasian and how many people are of other ethnicities, um, people of color, this doesn't reflect it very well. 73% of the world is not white. So... Especially since um, if we're talking about American media, America is such a melding pot of different cultures. And so I think that they should be represented in Hollywood. Um, and I mean, while Allison talked about the negative parts of the Hollywood film industry, I think that there are a few um, different films that are relatable for an Asian American audience. So one of them is Better Luck Tomorrow. It was filmed in 2002, and it was about Asian Americans who were overachieving. Um, it was about Asian Americans in a high school crime drama. And so it really countered the, the model minority myth, which I think is so powerful to do in film, um, because these kids were involved in crime. And, you know, the stereotype of Asian Americans is to be extremely high overachieving, not get themselves into any trouble or anything. Um, and it, it was just great representation for um, those actors to be in something involved like that and to counter that stereotype. Um, another one of them is Gook. It was in 2017, and it documents an African-American woman and two Korean-American brothers' struggles with race and identity um, during the L.A. riots. And again, just like having that struggle and having representation in Hollywood, I think is really powerful. Um, and then the last one that I want to mention is Namesake. It was in 2006, and it explores the hardships and journey of um, Asian immigrants, which I think is a really powerful thing to do in film, again, because there are so many people that have experienced that, whether it be firsthand or um, hearing stories, hearing about the hardships, and making it um, appreciated and documenting it in film is really powerful. 
To add on a few more, um, I found um, a movie called Dear White People, <laughs> um, and it is it's a movie that talks about the lives of four African American students um, with vastly diverging approaches to the race relations collide on the campus of an Ivy League college, and I think this really ties in, you know, a modern society with issues that people actually face. And another movie that I personally really enjoy is called Hidden Figures. Um, and so this takes place in the early 1960s as the United States and Russia compete to put the first man in space. And so these three African-American women are at NASA and they help to work out the math and, you know, this, the statistical things that need to be figured out in this movie. And the reason I love this movie so much is because I think it shows struggle just as much as it shows success and pride in African-American culture. And obviously I am not, well, not obviously, but I'm not African-American, so I cannot fully contest to whether these experiences are accurate or not. But I found it really interesting that um, they showed the emotion that could that came with segregation and just the sheer amount of stress it put on these women, even when they were achieving above their, you know, their white peers. And I just thought it was such a powerful movie. And just to add on to that a little bit, um, I think that's such a good example that you brought up because it's really powerful because it's their struggle and their struggle alone. A lot of the times um, there's this white savior complex. um, And this applies not just to film, but all around the world. A few movies that have the white savior complex are Help and, um, sorry, The Help and um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus Finch is white and he acts as, you know, the saving, the hero who saves um, the black person who was falsely accused. Again, with The Help, um, I think it's Emma Stone, um, Emma Stone, she writes a book documenting the struggles of African-American women who served in white households. And um, it just, the focus and the character development um, is placed on the whites, the white hero. And I think that just really takes away from BIPOC's struggle because the white um, narrative always needs to be inter interwoven into our narrative and that's not something that should happen we all have different struggles we all have different narratives and so it needs to be an authentic non-eurocentric perspective of um a racial struggle and i think that's why the hidden hidden figures and um the movies that you mentioned are so powerful For this week's rice of the episode, we wanted to bring in a Sri Lankan dish called Kiri Bath. And please excuse me if I'm saying that wrong. Um, But this is a dish composed of rice and coconut milk and is a staple. Um, The rice is cooked in milk and then it is left to set on a shallow plate. Um, It is traditionally cut into square or diamond shapes and they are topped with spicy chili paste or if they can be served along with um, bananas. And Kiribath represents prosperity and good luck, and it's an integral part of their culture, and it's traditionally served to commemorate new beginnings. Um, and a fun fact, it is given to children as their first kind of solid food. When reading this, I really just thought of um, my own culture and how 
I know that my parents did uh, traditionally Indian things when I was a baby, and I I was, you know, fed Indian food as one of my first solid foods, and it's just nice to remember that even though you might feel that you're losing some parts of your culture, like, those kinds of things, they're always there, and they're always a comfort. And uh, with that being said, we wish you all prosperity and good luck this episode, and we will see you in episode seven. Thank you.